snippets of timeless classics with ramblings on everything bookish, Ink and Quill connects you with literature, culture and writers in China and around the globe. Discovering literature and following the stories behind your favorite authors. This is Ink and Quill. I'm your host, Yang Yong. We all establish an image of our parents. For British osteopath Mary Monroe, her late father John Monroe was a Shropshire farmer, horseman, watcher of the TV news. Like many people in my generation, he was a typical father. He was quite distant. He wasn't much involved in childcare. He gave us our education. He gave us our, our moral code, but he didn't share much about himself. It was until 2007, at the birthday party of her mother, she found out her father was not the man she once thought he was. An old friend of the family was talking to me, and she said, "Your father was a 20th-century great," and I was really shocked. I didn't know what she meant. Some diaries and letters stashed in the drawer led her to discover the answer. It turned out that her father, Major John Monroe, was once a prisoner of war in Japanese-occupied Hong Kong during World War II, and managed to escape to the then Chinese wartime capital Chongqing with two fellow British officers. The man had kept all those experiences in secrecy throughout his life. They were terrified of being recaptured because they knew that they would be beheaded or. Put straight back into the POW camp. Almost thirty years after father's death, Mary Monroe published a book that uncovers her father's heroics, titled "Stranger in My Heart." During the phone interview, she shares with our reporter Shu Yu her father's unusual story and how she learns much about who she is by retracing her father's escape route. Mary, when I get my hand on your book, "Stranger in My Heart." There's one line that really touches me, which says, "So many of us share this experience—the loss of a parent or grandparent—without knowing them as a person, rather than just the role." So I wonder—is that what you had experienced? You know, losing your father without really knowing what sort of person he was. Yes, I thought about it. I realized that this man that I loved, who I called Dad, I didn't actually know at all. And like many people in my generation, he was a typical father. He was quite distant. He wasn't much involved in childcare. He gave us our education. He gave us our, our moral code, but he didn't share much about himself.、Mm. And after he died, I realised I didn't really know him as a person at all.、Mm. So growing up, did you know he participated in the Second World War? I did. I knew everyone called him the Colonel, and I knew that he'd been an army officer, and I knew that he'd spent a lot of time in Hong Kong,、mm -hmm. and I knew that he had escaped from POW camp after the Battle of Hong Kong.、Mm -hmm. But really, that was all my experiences when I talked to people of my sort of age. They all have this one sentence legend. About their father or grandfather,、mm. they just know one little snippet, and that's all. 
It came to me that it was during your mother's 80th birthday party you decided to uncover your father's hidden past. So could you tell us more about it? Well, what happened was that um, an old friend of the family was talking to me and she said, your father was a 20th century great. Mm. And I was really shocked. I didn't know what she meant. And I felt I had to find out. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think what she really meant was that he was uh, a man of a, of a type, uh, perhaps a whole generation were of that type, who fought through the Second World War. I don't just mean fought the enemy. I mean fought to survive mm. through the Second World War. Mm. And they were an extraordinary generation. And we need to honor them and remember them. Yeah. So how did you pick out, you know, the whole bunch of stories and anecdotes? Well, he had left behind quite a lot of reports and letters that he'd written to his parents and diaries and things. And my mum had all of these in a big brown envelope in her desk. Mm -hmm. And after this party, I said to her, could I have a look at those? And they gave me the start point to understand his story. Mm. Um, but obviously, I had to do a lot of research to understand the bigger picture of what was happening mm-hmm. in China and in the war generally. So I also did a lot of research at the Imperial War Museum. I looked at the Roosevelt Presidential Library. I read lots of books. I um all sorts of research that I had to do because, again, like many of that generation, my father was very understated about his actions and about the events. Mm -hmm. And so it all sounded quite ordinary in a way. And then when I researched the bigger picture and the story around it, I thought, my goodness, this is absolutely extraordinary what he did. Yeah, But you wouldn't know that from reading his writing. Hmm. Well, since you talk about the big picture, some of our listeners probably don't know much about that part of the Second World War history. So could you briefly introduce to them, around that time, what happened in the Chinese mainland and Hong Kong, which was then colonized by Britain? And how did your father come to Hong Kong in the very first place? Well, my father was commissioned as an officer in 1934, Mm -hmm. and he was sent to Hong Kong in 1937. So he'd actually been there for some years before the war started. Mm -hmm. And of course, China had been at war with Japan since 1937. Yeah. But the rest of us didn't join in until the 7th of December 1941, when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. What people don't realize is that it was only six hours later that the Japanese attacked Hong Kong, Mm. as well as Malaya and the Philippines and Thailand and various places. So it was right at the very outset of the globalization of the war. Hong Kong was being defended by the British, but they were expecting an attack from the sea Mm. and the Japanese attacked from the land. So it didn't take the Japanese long to take the new territories and Kowloon and then there was a huge battle over several days um, for the island of Hong Kong and the British eventually surrendered on the 25th of December Christmas Day Mm. uh, 1941 and it was shortly after that that about uh, 6,000 of the Allied troops 
were taken over to Kowloon and imprisoned at Sham Shipo prison of war camp. Mm. So your father was taken prisoner after the Battle of Hong Kong. Did he ever write about what's it like at the Shan Shui POW camp? You know, did prisoners face brutality like those peers in Europe did? Oh, yes, very much so. He wrote a report, actually, about the conditions in the camp. And first of all, the camp had been a barracks, but um, after the battle, it was looted of everything useful in it so there was no water no facilities of any kind Mm. nothing to make fires with really there was nothing there Mm -hmm. and at the beginning it was quite disorganized but it quickly became obvious that they were in for a very poor time because there was very very little food there was a lot of brutality there was no medical care Mm. Um, it was clear that it was going to not be a good place to stay. And if you could possibly escape, that would be the best thing to do. Mm-hmm. But they were strongly advised against escape because it's impossible to disguise yourself in China if you're a white man. Yeah. Um, there were a lot of Japanese troops still all over Hong Kong and the new territories. There was no promise of any uh, support. So the advice was to stay put. So, since they were already advised not to escape, why and when did your father and other prisoners decide to escape to Chongqing, you know, the then wartime capital of nationalist China? Well, my father regarded it as his duty as an officer to escape. Mm. He wanted to get back to the war. This is in early 1942. The war is raging both in the Far East and in Europe. Mm -hmm. And he felt it was his duty to get back to it. He also, I think, felt that if he stayed in the POW camp, he was quite likely to die. And I think he preferred to take his chances by escaping. Mm -hmm. And I think Chongqing was the obvious place for them to go because it was where Allied command was. So once he'd arrived there, he would receive his next posting and then carry on with the war Mm. but it was very daunting for them because he didn't know anything about China he didn't know how he was going to get there he didn't know whether the Chinese people were friendly or not they had been warned about bandits and that the Chinese might well turn them over to the Japanese and so on so he wasn't at all uh, sure that it would be a successful thing to do yeah, and looking back, it sounds like a mission impossible because Chongqing is a city sitting almost 1,500 kilometers away from Hong Kong. And I suppose back in the 1940s, there were not many roads. They have to travel through mountains, rivers, jungles. And I don't know, how did they make their escape work when they were unarmed, they had no money, no travel permit, and hardly speaking a word of Chinese? It was extremely difficult. Um mm-hmm. My father had been in Hong Kong, as I say, since 1937. Mm. So he knew the new territories quite well. And he also had a map of the new territories that that went up as far as Weizhou. Mm. And so he also had a lot of help from his Chinese interpreter, Andrew Chung, who advised him the best way to go through the new territories, advised him to travel at night. Mm. So he and his two colleagues um, actually swam out of the camp. They they uh, 
made a little raft to carry some belongings and they swam out across the bay to avoid the Japanese troops that were that were on land. Wow. And then they made their way up into the new territories, mm-hmm. um, traveling entirely at night, and it took them about a week to get to the border. They were terrified of being recaptured or because they knew that they would be beheaded or put straight back into the POW camp. Yeah. Um, and also they were terrified that they would meet Chinese bandits who would also kill them or return them to the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So when they finally got to the Chinese border, they did meet some Chinese bandits who interrogated them and took their valuables from them mm-hmm. and then said, now, how can we help? And led them to the next Chinese nationalist mission and from there they were guided up to Weizhou where there was a a British mission Mm -hmm. and from there they were given help as allied refugees Mm -hmm. so they were given a small food allowance they were given travel permits and from there they were able to get help Um, and it's interesting actually through throughout Guangdong province they received help from both the Chinese nationalists and the communists who were working together in that area. And then they made their way to Chongqing by a very zigzag route, by road, by rail, by river, (laughs) and eventually got to Chongqing uh, two months later. But they were destitute refugees in a nation of destitute refugees, and they couldn't believe the help that they received along the way. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah, looking back, it was a quite a daring and epic escape. It was. It was. It's quite a journey. And I think it's when my dad fell in love with China, you know, in his letters he talks about the landscape, the scenery, the food. You know, he clearly loved it. That was British writer Mary Monroe talking with Shi Ru on her father's epic escape from Japanese-occupied Hong Kong to the then Chinese capital Chongqing during the Second World War. Coming up... What really surprised me, actually, most of all, was that I felt completely at home in China. I can't really tell you quite why. There was something really familiar to me about China in spite of the fact that it's very, very different, really, to um, Britain. Shiri will continue her conversation with Mary Monroe after this short break. More to come, so stay tuned. Explore the life of great wordsmiths. Share their stories beyond the pages. Ink and Quill brings you the voices of writers and book lovers. So your father broke free from the camp and successfully escaped to Chongqing after two months of trekking in southern China. But what happened to him next? Well, by the time he arrived in Chongqing, he was suffering from appendicitis. Mm. And he was flown to India to have his appendix out and to have a little uh, convalescence. And then he was sent straight back to Chongqing and he was made an assistant military attaché. And that role is a liaison role between the political leaders and the military leaders. So it's quite an important function within Allied Command. Mm. You know, as you mentioned in your book, Stranger in My Heart, there were two other officers who escaped to Chongqing with your father. But what happened to those who were left behind in the POW camp? 
Well, I think that was a major concern for my father, actually, because one of his principal roles as assistant military attaché was to work with an organization called the British Army Aid Group, Mm -hmm. whose job was to look after the POWs who'd been left behind in Hong Kong. Mm. So they did their best to get in food, medical supplies, news, information, and so on. And with them, my father developed a plan to rescue all of them Mm. because within a few months of their imprisonment, the men were really unfit to escape. They were sick, they were starving, they were being very badly treated, and they just wouldn't have been up to trekking across the country in the way that my father had done in the very early days of their incarceration. Yeah. And so, really, if they were going to get out at all, it would have to be a sort of mass rescue. What mostly happened to them, a lot of them were uh, transferred to Japan by ship. Mm. Um, A lot of them died, and a lot of them remained in the camp for the rest of the war. Mm. Because the plan that my father developed to try and rescue them was agreed in principle, but never actually happened in practice, because... Um, There were other priorities, basically. If you think about it from a war strategy point of view, rescuing hundreds of men who are unfit to fight is not going to be at the top of your list of important things to do. Mm. Shocking, though, that might sound. So, uh, unfortunately, they had to suffer till the end of the war. Yeah, it was quite tragic. So, did your father ever go back to Hong Kong? He went back to Hong Kong in the 1950s because he was posted there as part of his work in the army. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never went to China. And my father died in 1981, so he never really got the opportunity to go back. Mm-hmm. Um, I know he would have loved to join me when I went to China. Mm. Well, as a mention of your own trip, as far as I know, you came to China in 2013. That's right. So what prompted you to retrace your father's footsteps? Well, I read all of these letters and diaries and reports and things, and it was very interesting, but I didn't really feel that I could properly connect with my father without actually visiting China. And I also wanted to understand Chinese culture better. So I learned a bit of Mandarin, And I decided that I was going to retrace his footsteps. But it was really hard to arrange because, obviously, it's not on the standard tourist itinerary. Yeah. Um, But I was very lucky. I found a fantastic company called Odinovo Tours. Mm -hmm. And they were able to um, find a way for me to retrace exactly the journey that my father had done. Mm -hmm. So I was then able to go there at the same time of year that he escaped because he talked about the tongue oil trees being in bloom and things like this. And I wanted to see China through his eyes. Mm -hmm. So I I traveled at the same time of year. Mm. And uh, I just loved it. I thought it was amazing. Yeah, I'm sure it is. You know, I find it quite interesting because when you traveled in China, over 70 years had already passed since your father's trek. So many things have already changed. Do you have any surprising or unexpected findings during that journey? 
Yes, absolutely. I, I mean, I was fearful that the trip would be a failure um, <laughs> in the sense that 70 years is a long time. China has developed enormously during that time. And I thought, well, I, I'm not going to see anything that my dad saw. And of course, the cities are very different now to how they were 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. But actually, rural China hasn't changed very much at all. And I loved going through the countryside and seeing the fields being plowed with buffaloes and seeing rice paddy and seeing tea growing and, you know, all of these sorts of things. And I thought, this is exactly what Dad would have seen. The weather's the same, the rivers are the same, the people are the same. It's exactly as it would have been all those years ago. Mm. And I had to just, you know, ignore the, the modern bits and the highways and the new airports and all those sorts of things because necessary though they are, they they um, weren't quite part of the picture all those years ago. Yeah. Um, but what really surprised me, actually, most of all, was that I felt completely at home in China. I can't really tell you quite why it there was something really familiar to me about China, in spite of the fact that it's very, very different, really, to um, Britain. Yeah. And after this trip, you published your book, Stranger in My Heart. So now looking back, in your opinion, why did your father keep silent about his heroics during the Second World War? I mean, what he did was marvelous. Well, it was. But as I said at the beginning, I think... Um, that whole generation were marvellous and did amazing things. Whether they were in the military or whether they were doing other things, all supporting the war effort. And I think perhaps they remained silent about it because they didn't want to say, what I did was amazing because they knew that what everybody else did was amazing too. And so in a way, it's a kind of shared experience that they didn't feel like they needed to explain to anybody. Everybody knew that that's what had happened. I mean, it's frustrating, I think, for us, the, the next generations down because we don't know what they did and we don't know how amazing they were and that's really why I wanted to publish the book to encourage people to um, think about the stranger in their heart you know to take that one sentence legend about their father or grandfather and explore it because most people have no clue about what their ancestors did mm -hmm. in that terrible time yeah, yeah, that's true. So now, finding out your father was an unheralded hero and survivor during the Second World War, what sort of impact does that discovery have on your own life? Well, I think by honoring and respecting my father, I feel I've returned to him a little part of everything that he gave to me. Mm -hmm. And I... I also really appreciate what he gave to me. I understand much better who I am mm. through understanding who he was. It feels complete. Yeah. So for you, what's his biggest legacy? I think the thing I value most, the gift that he gave me that I value most, 
is fearlessness. He didn't have a clue how brave he was. It was like he was brave blind or something. He just had no idea. And actually, that's a terrific trait to have in many ways. Perhaps it's a bit reckless sometimes, but I think to go through life fearlessly is an enormous gift, and Mm. I, I treasure that. That was Shui talking with Mary Monroe, author of the book Stranger in My Heart. On that note, it's time to wrap up today's program. Don't forget, there is always something interesting taking place in the literary world. As such, we always do our best to try to keep you updated. To learn more about us, you can subscribe to our podcast by searching the keywords Ink and Quill on iTunes. Any feedback or comments are welcome. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Yang Yong. Talk to you again next week.